NSA, this is Jim Cathcart. Welcome to the March 2014 edition of Voices of Experience. You know, in the month of March, nature is getting ready by gathering assets for the growth spurt that will come in the spring. So our theme this month, Gathering Assets, has brought quite a set of assets for you to listen to. First off, I have two interviews, and between these two people, we have the owner of a Speakers Bureau, the past president of the International Association of Speakers Bureaus, a person who was a speaker staff member, a speaker, a speaker manager of several others, and all this in just two people. Next, we're going to listen to an analysis of our profession from outside of our world. We're going to have a specialist tell us exactly what's going on with the speaking profession today and present some research that you're going to want to hear. After that, we'll hear from the closest cousin organization to NSA, and that is Toastmasters International. Then you'll hear reports on upcoming NSA events that you don't want to miss out on. And also, Greg Williams brings us his Glad You Asked segment with information about the Cavett Award. What is it? How does it work? How do you earn that? We'll hear a news report from President Ron Carr. And then more from the CPAE's Cavett winners and past presidents who were there at the Speaker's Roundtable meeting last summer where they continue to talk about their own unique business models so that you can compare how you do business to how they do business. And for those among you who hold your own events and sponsor your own meetings or would like to, Jim Ziegler is going to share the insider's view on how to make that profitable and powerful. We'll also continue our music of the month by presenting an award-winning singer, actress, speaker, coach, but first up, let's hear from speaker, performer, co-owner of a bureau, Gil Eagles. Gil Eagles is not only a CSP and a CPAE, he is a person who has been at the top of many parts of this profession over different time frames in his career, and I want to kind of walk down memory lane with him today to get an insight into some of those possibilities. Thinking as a, as a speaker listening to this, I'd like you to be able to see how many possibilities there are open to you in the speaking profession. Gil, welcome to VOE. Thank you. You've been a mentalist and a hypnotist. Tell us about that. Well, I started early in my career. I was interested in magic. Mm-hmm. And the magic uh, led me to becoming interested in mentalism, which is really magic of the mind. It's, yeah. it's using tricks in order to make it seem as if you can read minds. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of fun. Yeah. And I started doing that and started working up in the Catskills, uh, working in coffee shops in the Greenwich Village. And uh, we're talking almost 40 years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, one thing led to another. Uh, then I became interested in hypnotism mm-hmm. and then developed that into a stage presentation. I then had two programs. And that's served me well for many, many years and allowed me to make a handsome living. That moved on to another area of speaking because when I went to the colleges people were a little confused about what hypnosis is so I began to do a little explanation with my show and and with just something I threw in. One year I came back to a particular college 
and we were running a little late. We started late. So I didn't do that little piece. The person who booked me was later on upset. He said, what, what happened to the talk? I said, what talk? He said, that little thing at the end. Well, the little bell went off, boom. Yeah. You know, I mean, there's a talk there. <laughs> and so that developed into a more formal presentation. Mm-hmm. Speaking became something that was more interesting to me than actually the entertaining, although I did that. Yeah. And later on, I put together uh, two different speaking programs. One was a motivational talk, which stood alone, and one was a leadership program. What was the difference in that one? Well, the leadership program was always preceded with the hypnosis show. I never did a leadership program without the hypnosis show. I would do the hypnosis show first, which, and I was booked as a leadership speaker. And to the audience, they would wonder, what's this got to do with leadership? It always starts by saying, let me ask you a question. If you can get the people who report to you to perform as effectively and creatively and as enthusiastically as these people on stage did, wouldn't you want to learn how to do that? And then I follow that up. Well, I'm going to show you the 10 steps of leadership. And everything I spoke about after that, I just got demonstrating with oh. their own people on the platform. Full so, immersion. So all of a yeah. sudden, that which seemed frivolous suddenly became a very strong metaphor. How did you end up creating a speaker's bureau? We started way back there when I was working in the colleges. Because we were in the show business end of it, we knew other acts. So we'd recommend other people. And all of a sudden, a little bell went off. Wait a minute. There's money here. (laughs) We ended up with 12 different attractions that we had exclusively. Mm. And we booked those for many years. And then when we outlived my place in the colleges, because when their parents were younger than me, it was time to leave the colleges. But then I transitioned (laughs) into the corporate market Mm -hmm. and joined NSA. Mm -hmm. And from NSA, learned more speakers, and we began to represent speakers to corporate markets. There was one thing you said to me when Evil Knievel had announced to the world that he was going to do a jump across the Grand Canyon. You were part of that extravaganza. Yes, I was. Tell um, us the story. I was the, op- I was the opening act. I rode a motorcycle blindfolded on the edge of the canyon, right on the edge. I, what? I was looking Were for, you thinking? I was looking. I was young and foolish, and I was thinking of some publicity. How can I get some PR? And I, in those days, it was quite different. And so that was wow. So if if I were your protege and you were coaching me now in, in developing my speaking career, what advice would you give to me beyond you know some of the usual things we hear in the halls at NSA? Well, the first thing I always like to tell emerging speakers Mm -hmm. is that we are in fact in show business. The performance part is the show. Yeah. And and the rest of it is business. So we really need to concentrate on our marketing and letting people know who you are. You don't have to drive blindfolded to do that, but you have to let people know who you are and you have to market yourself because you can be really good and still be a well-kept secret. And there are speakers who are not that good, not, of course, in the NSA, (laughs) who are getting booked. And so, uh, market it. Again, it's important that they know that they are focused 
on a particular subject and they need to also focus on a particular market that they want to market to but do focus on marketing more than anything else and and if you're good at that of course you've got to have a good show otherwise you won't get rebooked and you won't get recommended so have a good show and you will be recommended beautiful almost every newer speaker says to me so how do i get booked by the bureaus as a bureau we are in competition with 100 plus other bureaus. Oh yeah. All looking for that same gig, the same engagement from the same company. The way we get the bookings and the way we make our commissions is if we close an engagement. So we are going to recommend only those people that we feel will have a good chance of getting booked. So a new emerging speaker is gonna have a hard time getting into our bureau, unless we get requests for that particular speaker, and then we hear extraordinary things, and then, all right, who's who's this person that we lost the date to? So we will go find out who that particular person is. Now, an emerging speaker, I would suggest that rather than concentrate on a bureau, that they get in touch with maybe a speaker's management company. Mm-hmm. who will help groom them, who will then help market them. Build demand for them. Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. I, it's up to me to build the demand for me, to Absolutely. make people want to have me as their next speaker. And then, as I approach a, a bureau agent like yourself, then I've got something to bring other than just eagerness for a booking. With the technology and the, and the Internet, Speakers can actually go on their own. They don't really need a bureau because they've developed a, a niche market. They market to that uh, particular niche, advertise to that niche or whatever they do. They blog and all of those things, and they'll get booking. They write articles. They get to be known as the expert in that area, and they'll get booked. Mm-hmm. I would like to give your audience a, a tip when you're marketing to a bureau. For every slot with an, uh, an organization, there are 50 speakers that would fit that slot. The, the speakers that Joe in Atlanta sells and Christy in New York never sells. And what Steve might recommend, Bill might not recommend. So when you market, don't market to the bureau. Find out who the individual uh, agents are within that bureau that's who you market to because you don't want to be calling the salespeople. They don't have the time right. nor the inclination. They don't want to be troubled with speakers trying to interest them. Trying to but them. Yeah. mark to them by email or however. You know. Yeah, it, it really is a dilemma because the way to get known is to know them and build a relationship with them. And, and the last thing in the world they want you to do is call and call and drop by and interrupt their other otherwise productive work day. But they do want to hear from you and, in whatever indirect ways you can yeah, get and, things. And, and what will annoy a salesperson is a speaker comes on and will not tell them how to stop telling them how terrific they are and go on and on and on. And the salesman knows he has several more phone calls and emails to attend to, and, and they don't even listen anymore. So yeah, <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately, that. it's very tough to get into a into a bureau if you're an emerging speaker. Unless you suddenly become a best-selling mm-hmm. author and you're in demand or you're in the news. That's always the magic And then, bill. of course, yeah. 
Yeah. And and then again, the other side of the story is if you're already in demand, because I'm speaking also as a former speaker, as I've been retired. Why do you need the bureau? Why would you want to give them any commission if you can keep it all yourself? Mm -hmm. So there is that um, dilemma that each speaker has. Thank you very much for your time on VOE and your contributions to our profession. Thank you, Jim, and lots of love to all the emerging speakers and all the successful speakers out there already. Thank you very much, Gil. Next, we're going to hear from Holly Catchpole. I've known Holly for many years, and I've seen her go through various stages of her career, and I know you'll learn a lot from her insights into how to work with and understand speakers' bureaus. I've been working with Holly Catchpole in a variety of roles now for how many years? 30. 30 years? So I know when somebody's impressive and when they're not. And this lady is impressive because I've seen her in all those various roles throughout those years. And I've seen her evolution from being a clerk starting out in a speaker's office at minimum wage to being the director of a, a speaker's business and running it as the executive to being the president of the International Association of Speakers Bureaus, for heaven's sakes. I mean, this is a remarkable woman. So welcome, Holly, to VOE. Thank you, Jim. What have you experience that's kind of really made an impression on you at various stages along that path? I think that the journey has been such a natural evolution for me and because it just was somewhat slow and methodical but each step I grew each year I learned a little bit more I grew up in NSA I know so many speakers that are my buds and that I manage and it was just fun to have the speakers call me and say, hey, you know, I hear what you're doing. And it, like I said, it was just very natural for me and a very natural fit for what I do and what I love doing. Well, it's shown clearly because your career has been beautiful. Describe Speaker's Office, Inc. So after I initially launched Speaker's Office with both you and Tony, then I really just kind of, you know, hit the ground running, but I wasn't really reaching out to other speakers. But it was a model that really made sense. And once the word got out, then that's when I did really start chatting with the various speakers. And it still happens to this day. So again, like I said, it's just a very natural evolution because it's something that makes sense. And I have something that people can really utilize all the experience that I yeah. have. How many, how many speakers do you have in your stable of talent today? Fifteen. Wow. And they're 15 top talent. Initially, Speaker's Office was such a new model and one of the first speaker management companies. So it was just a new trend in the industry. So luckily, I had already 17 years working with all the bureaus. So they were very comfortable with that shift. Bring us up to that. Give us a description for the, the folks that don't know IASB Well, what's interesting about IASB is that when it was initially formed, it really was to create better relationships with the exclusive agencies that basically hated each other. So for us to, for them to be able to do and accomplish what they wanted to accomplish and not really like each other was not, (laughs) you know, the, the best way to form any kind of a partnership. So they got together and it was just a few people and then eventually it grew from there. But what's interesting about how it started is that to this day, the number one feedback that we get about the convention, what you liked the best, is the people. 
and hanging out with each other and talking business and laughing and telling stories. So it's got the feeling that you get at NSA. Absolutely. The openness, the sharing and all that. Well, even, yeah, the members in general, I mean, they genuinely love to hang out with each other. And they probably kind of don't want to have that much of a love fest, (laughs) but it's... You know, it's like, gosh, I didn't know so and so was going to be such a nice person, or you know, so it's 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 been fun to watch. Yeah. If I'm a newer speaker that has something to offer, I've got my act together, so we'll assume that part. How do I start to communicate with the bureau world and do it in a way that's reasonable and not annoying? What's interesting about what has shifted is that clients are so much more sophisticated on how they're looking for their speakers, so they don't, you know. Back when we first started booking speakers, they just wanted somebody that was entertaining and, you know, was charismatic on stage. Now it doesn't really matter if they're charismatic as long as they have this research-based content that the company needs. So that's been a shift. TED has been a, a big shift. Clients are, you know, they're TED junkies, and they just follow the TED videos, and that's how they'll find a speaker. So bureaus want to hear from speakers, and they do want to be introduced to speakers that they don't know about, but it is definitely a challenge because they're inundated, and I know they're inundated because I'm also on the same list, and I get probably a book if not two or three every week and I don't even know where they came from it's costly packages that are just getting thrown away so that Mm. definitely is not the way to go I always recommend that you start out very small and if you know of a bureau that's in your area you're going to be speaking just start that introduction because if you're doing a good job and you have good content the bureau is going to find out about you and you can't get away with not being absolutely current even websites i mean the meeting planners are out there looking at all those speakers before you even know they've been on your site so what's the latest on the bureau friendly concept it's definitely evolved there are speakers that still have bureau friendly websites but it's um it's not even a request that really happens anymore because they're well aware that the the client can just go google google the name you've not only made a significant difference in your own impressive career, but you've made a difference in the world of professional speaking through what you've done. And I'm sincere about that. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. And next, I'd like to introduce you to Bill Vogley of Association Trends, who NSA hired to study our profession and give us statistics and insights into how our profession stands today and where it's probably headed next. Well, I get to welcome Bill Vogley with Association Insights to VOE. Bill, nice to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here. Now, you've done something that's kind of special. You've practiced what you preach in the name of your company, Association Insights. So you've come into NSA, and you've interviewed at our request NSA members. You've interviewed past NSA members, non-members, and people who are in the speaking profession but don't participate in NSA. Quite a few people. Sure. Well, we also spoke with meeting and event planners and architects, Uh and we uh, spoke with bureau owners and people who are in charge of identifying, recruiting, and engaging speakers for meetings, events, ceremonies, whatever it might be. So basically, everybody, we would like to know what they're thinking. You've been talking to those people. Right. I've tried (laughs) to look at both supply and demand sides here. Well, it's interesting because we conducted the research over the telephone. We made a bunch of individual phone calls to lots of people, actually 
79 people mm-hmm. in various um, capacities around the industry and profession. And we generally started the conversation with a question like, what keeps you awake at night? The responses we got were very consistent mm. uh, in terms of both what people who are acquiring speaking resources are looking for and in need of, and in terms of what speakers feel that they're missing. And some of the, the challenges that they face were consistent, and I believe that NSA is in a unique position to, to respond to those challenges and to fill a, a, a terrific opportunity that exists in the speaking industry right now. So tell us, what did you find? <laughs> okay, it is a secret. Okay. Um, but I, I, I would like to qualify this to the extent that I say when I presented these answers to the board, the board embraced them and is dedicated to moving ahead with it. Excellent. So, so it's, it's one process. thing to get yeah. good answers. It's another to get good results as a product of those answers. Of course, the economy mm-hmm. has affected everyone. The budgets for hiring speakers are way down. They have been since 2007. Some cases, budgets were cut 100%. On average, they were cut 35 percent. Meeting attendance is down or has been about 25 percent. And there have been a lot of economic conditions that have surrounded both the supply and demand side in the speaking industry. Yeah. Now those, it looks like they may have reached near the bottom and they may be coming up, but there's not much speakers or anyone else can do about that. Right. But there are three other trends that we discovered that could help. One is there, the demographics are shifting. It's potential that five different demographic groups could be sitting in one audience. And the youngest of those demographic groups sees things and wants things very differently than the older members of of that audience might. Whereas um, it used to be that that print was popular, now it's it's, it's Mm e-formats. And whereas it used to be that sitting down for long engagements of reading was popular, now, much like VOE has discovered, it's it's e-readers and and listening to books on tape. The the length of engagement has declined dramatically, whereas 60 to 90 minutes used to be no problem um, in terms of holding someone's attention. Now sometimes it seems like 60 to 90 seconds. Wow. So attention spans have changed, formats for delivery have changed, and the people who have these different expectation requirements could be sharing the same space in front of a speaker who's supposed to address both. So I'm talking to all those people at the same time trying to meet the needs of all of them, and they've got different needs. Exactly. Yep. And so that being a challenge, it's interesting that, uh, that some speakers have found ways to adapt their message so that it appeals to both audiences. And I believe NSA is in a very unique position of being able to go out and seek guidance from its membership on best practices that, that people have used to address these different needs. And in mm-hmm. some cases, a speaker has an excellent message that they've honed for a specific audience, and now that audience has changed, and maybe, maybe they're addressing a new audience that they haven't addressed before. And so the audience may be homogenous, but it's a different audience than the message was intended for. And as a result, many speakers are having to adapt the delivery of a, let's say, a tried and proven message uh, to meet the needs of a different audience. What do you see that's needed? Let's, let's get specific with some of the things that you found people are wanting or needing. Getting feedback from the audience. Getting, let's say, immediate response from the audience. Yeah. And allowing a dialogue to exist with the audience is something that's now more expected than it has been in the past. Mm-hmm. The, the pre-, during-, and post-event experience are big. It's becoming more important. It's becoming more important that messages be delivered that can be divided into sound bites, if you will, mm-hmm. so that they can be consumed either in order or at random. Yeah. Uh, because the, the younger generation has the ability, um, a greater ability for concept assembly through nonlinear learning methods. 
So they're able to take the end of the message first, combine it with the middle, and combine it with the beginning according to their interest level, and create the story themselves accurately in such a way that, that creates a very meaningful message to them. So having a, a divisible message, both on video and yeah. audio, is becoming a much more valuable way for speakers to remain relevant to a broader range of audiences. How important is it for the speakers to have like a Twitter feed during their talk or things like that that we've seen in some of the big venues? It is growing. Uh, we are seeing a, a greater um, adoption of social media technology in use by a broader range of demographics. While the, while the Generation X and Generation Y groups um, are notorious okay. for the use or overuse for some of these social media. Yeah. Good choice of words, by the way. Yeah. Well, they, yeah. <laughs> they're not being surpassed in any way, but I would say that the, some of the older generations have discovered the value in these ad hoc social media access points that allow them insights into the value of what's going on. They Mm -hmm. can see if there's a fan base behind something. They can see if their opinion is unique or if they are part of a larger groundswell of support or opposition about a message, whatever it may be. We will see the the technologies emerge, Mm -hmm. but it's extremely important for a speaker to be available on all of them, to have their own web space, to have their own YouTube videos, if, if possible. The ability for a speaker to make their presence on the Internet evident and to be accessible on the Internet is extremely important in the competitive race to see who gets the gig. Yeah. Uh, the number one opponent for a paid speaker is an unpaid speaker right now. Again, we go back to the economies. Mm-hmm. But we found that a lot of the unpaid speakers are growing a little stale. Their message isn't resonating as well as it used to. And as a result, uh, some budgets are becoming freed up to look for a paid speaker who's a professional, who can bring a fresh perspective, a professional delivery yeah. quality. And, and many meeting planners and people who seek speaker resources are finding that the paid speaker is a more bang for the buck, even though the free speaker didn't cost any bucks. These trends, by the way, again, they are pretty pandemic to the industry, and it's, uh-huh. it's demographics, the economy, technology, and, and messaging being relevant, and positioning be, being relevant. The speakers who have found a way to embrace the relevance and technology piece, the, the ones who found a way to address the, um, the issues of cross-demographical audiences. Yeah, generational differences and... and Industry differences and, and yeah, cultural differences. Like yeah. We were well, much more point. multicultural now as well. Yeah. So the speakers who've reached out and embraced these and and tried to leverage them for their own benefit are the ones who reported to us are the, the happiest. Mm-hmm. They're the most successful. They're the ones who have the brightest outlook towards the future. And they're the ones who defend the speaking profession as viable and healthy because yeah. they themselves have decided to, to address and embrace the professionalism of the speaking instead of the speaking part of the profession. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, there's a good distinction. And, and I haven't heard anybody emphasize it quite like that. Uh, good point. Any recommendations you want to sort of assert as we're closing this segment? The most important thing anyone can do currently because of the rate of change is to keep your eyes up. Don't be looking at your shoes. <laughs> be looking, aim high, look over the horizon yep. because things are moving quickly. And by the time I finish this sentence, the future's already here. Whew. And if we continue to attach ourselves to the past, then we'll just get further and further from the present. Thank you. Thank you very much. You bet. Thank you, Bill. 
now let's meet the head of NSA's biggest cousin organization, as I said earlier, Toastmasters International. One topic that has come up again and again and again is what's the difference between the National Speakers Association and Toastmasters International? Toastmasters International is a worldwide organization, much like NSA is becoming more and more through the Global Speakers Federation, but it has a different mission, and it's a wonderful resource for people. And today we have the privilege of exploring that resource. I have with me the guy who's accountable for all of it, <laughs> Daniel Rex, Executive Director of Toastmasters International. Welcome to Voices of Experience. Thanks, Jim. It's great to be here. Can you uh, describe for our members what is Toastmasters International now? Sure. Our, our mission is to enable men and women to become better communicators and leaders. And we've been doing that for 90 years through a club-based system. We've got about 14,000 clubs in 116 countries, 300,000 people in the program at any point in time. And it's locally organized to a very large extent. You've created programs and systems that make it a consistent experience, whether it's in Dubai or Dublin or Dubuque, right? Yeah, that's one of the most amazing things and one of our greatest ongoing challenges is to create and support a program that's consistent and provides the same benefit for our members. And, and we've successfully done that, and it evolved over a very long time. Uh, I was in a club in Kuching, Malaysia earlier this year, and I was thrilled to see that they manage the program in approximately the same way. But most critically, the experience that each member had was very, very similar to what it is in the, in the clubs in California or the clubs in D.C. When we talk to people about why they join Toastmasters, they might say, I need to improve my public speaking. My boss told me that I needed to do something. But on their way out, when they've spent their time with us and have choose to go another direction, almost all of them say that what they got was confidence. So we view Toastmasters as the vehicle that gets them there, and our public speaking training is the, is where the rubber meets the road, but confidence is, is the end result. A, a lot of people walk into the program with expectations of giving a speech or two or getting some evaluation on a speech they have prepared, and what they don't realize is that it's a full-circle communication program. Whether you're getting up and speaking or evaluating someone else or being evaluated yourself, you learn a myriad of skills that are applicable across whatever you're doing in life. That's something I noticed immediately, was that everyone in the room at a Toastmasters meeting has a role. You're either an evaluator, an introducer, you're leading the pledge to the flag if you're doing that at the meeting, uh, giving an invocation if that's you know part of the practice. Then every part of that meeting has a, a way of teaching. And you've drilled down to determine what's the structure of an introduction, a proper introduction. What's the structure of the receiving of an award. How do you go about receiving, not just giving an award? Right, right. And wow, I mean, it gives people a, a track to run on, a way to think about it. Yeah, yeah. It's amazing to see what has developed over time in the organization and then how that has gone out and been used in the world. So what would an NSA member get through their Toastmasters experience that they wouldn't be getting if they were active in NSA you know, a lot of the people who have been NSA members who have come later to Toastmasters have talked to me about that. And the things that they talk to me about are consistent opportunities to speak in a very friendly environment, and an environment where evaluation and good, solid, constructive, positive evaluation is key to making it work. 
we also teach a lot of the details and the technical specifics of how to organize your speech correctly, good ways to use visual aids, using your voice in a better way. And you get to practice this every single week. And that's a primary benefit for NSA members. I can see that. You know, with 14,000 clubs around the world, if you're an NSA speaker and you are constantly on the road, you can jump on our website and find a club near you almost wherever you are. And if you're a member of a club where you live, uh, they'll be happy to welcome you in. It's it's best to drop them a note, let them know you're coming, and who knows, maybe they'll even have a speaking slot for you. So if you're traveling in a place that's new to you, you can try your material on a different people, a different culture, and see what their reactions are. That's a real common practice with both Toastmasters members and, and other people who have come in as they travel to um, be able to meet people through these other clubs. I can see an added benefit there. If you're traveling to another country and you want to understand that culture better, that could be very, very good medicine to Absolutely. go in there, attend a Toastmasters meeting, and say, hey, would this story work here? How? Is this punchline funny in this culture? It's not? Oh, well, how could I say that and still get a laugh or get a good response? You better work that humor through somebody local before you stand on the platform and do it. And those Toastmasters meetings would be great places to do that. Well, what would you like NSA to know or understand about Toastmasters? Anything you'd like to to say to our worldwide membership? You have to have something that differentiates you. And I've met a lot of NSA NSA members who come in and they know something, and that something differentiates them. And it allows them to gain an audience and to sell themselves and to get bookings. Uh, But give us a chance to help you perfect how you're delivering that speech and let us give you an opportunity to practice. And whether it's that speech or a collection of your one-liners, let us help you work out your technical skills from day to day and week to week. I think that you'll find an environment that is supportive, that's helpful, and you'll have a great time. Toastmasters.org is our website. Tons of information about who we are and where we are. Daniel Rex, thank you for spending time with us today. Thanks, Jim. It's a privilege. Thank you, Daniel. And now for information about our publishing lab, Diana Boer. Diana Boer here with news about the Mega Million Writing and Publishing Lab in New York City, May 1 through 3. We have 23 presenters. You heard me correctly, 23 speakers to give you ideas on how to sell more books. In fact, that's the focus of the entire event, how to increase your book sales. Whether you're traditionally published, self-published, a new author, or already an accomplished author. We'll be talking about selling from all angles. Selling your idea to an agent, selling your book to a major publisher, and learning the latest trends in book proposals. Selling books in bulk to major corporations, associations, and the like. Making foreign sales. Selling through unusual distribution channels. Using PR agents to sell effectively. And one more thing. The place is going to be swarming with editors and agents. So start now to develop your pitch and or your proposal so it's ready to go. You'll have opportunity to sign up for a private 15-minute appointment with an agent or editor as part of your registration. In fact, email now to Nikki Harris at NSA Headquarters to request your slot. Those are available on a first-come, first-served basis, and they will fill up fast. See you there. And now, 
Here's Greg Williams with Glad You Asked. Hello, NSA and GSF members. This is Greg Williams, your CLO, Chief Listening Officer for VOE Sane. Welcome to this edition of Glad You Asked. Many of you have asked the question, what is the Cavett Award? Here to address your questions pertaining to the Cavett Award is past NSA President Ed Scannell. As most of our members probably know, Cavett Robert was the founder of our National Speakers Association. The spirit of Cavett really permeates the, the very essence of what NSA is really all about. The Cavett is, as you know, the highest honor that is given and bestowed by the National Speakers Association. As presented once a year, that is annually at our convention, to a member whose accomplishments over the years have, have really reflected and kind of personified the very spirit of what Cavett and who Cavett was all about. Now, what criteria is used to actually select the final recipients? The way the process works is that every member is eligible to be nominated, of course, and a person can self-nominate if they so desire. And there are four or five set of criteria. Number one is that the member must be a member of National Speakers Association for at least five continuous years. Secondly, an individual whose qualities in the opinion of the nominator uh, most closely resembles and and kind of respects the uh, activities that were specified in this description of what the cabinet is all about. Thirdly, it's a person, an individual who really contributes his or her time uh, and talent to NSA without concern for personal gain. As far as the nomination form, as the forms are sent out, the individuals specify in narrative form some of the actions that have brought honor and respect to that individual and why he or she would be a potential nominee uh, for the as a cabinet recipient. We also ask in the nomination form what the individual actually has done to reflect that credit and honor on the profession of speaking. And then thirdly, it's a very short form, form, by the way, is we ask the nominee to show and to tell us how that individual person has guided, you might say, in spite of other members, in the spirit of our founder. Uh, each year prior to the National Convention, Stacy Tesher gathers all of the nomination forms. Each of those forms are then emailed to each of the past NSA Cavett recipients. But let's say if there's 32 whatever nominees, then each of us as past recipients nominate in rank order our top five. And the way the process works is that after Stacy then compiles the top five nominees, we meet in person prior to the national convention in the summertime. And then at that time, it's like uh, what happens in Vegas type of thing. It, quite honestly, it's a very candid, a very open, a very candid type of discussions among the recipients. Then after the five nominees are discussed uh, among the confines of that room, we take a vote. After that vote is taken, uh, Stacy and myself then, uh, we count the votes so we know who the winner is. He or she is not actually identified 
to that person or to the public until the, the CPAE banquet uh, typically held on a Tuesday night. And that's when that person gets the surprise along with you know, the 1,000 or 2,000 of our members who are there in attendance. But it's been just a, a great learning experience for all of us. Uh, over the years, we've honored just that one person. So it's been just an honor to have been involved. Okay, well, there you have it from former Cabot Chair, past NSA National President, and CSP Ed's channel. To submit your own questions for VOE, send them to Stacy Tetchner at Stacy S-T-A-C-Y at nsaspeaker.org. Until next time, this is your Chief Listening Officer, Greg Williams, and I'm glad you asked. And now for our president, Ron Carr. As we grow our businesses, we're going to be making decisions on whether or not we should be launching a new product or service. This is what NSA went through when it decided to go ahead with its groundbreaking Platform Profits Lab recently held in January in Tempe, Arizona. This was going to be a new program for NSA, and there was risk involved. In my opinion, when launching a new product or service, there's two types of risk. One is dumb risk, and the second one is measured risk. Dumb risk is when you do things based on hope and emotion with very little research into your marketplace and what needs to be done in order for it to succeed. Measured risk is when you do the research, you understand what the market is looking for, and you're doing the things properly to ensure your success. In my opinion, we used measured risk to pull off the innovative program, Platform Profits Lab, in January. In doing so, we looked at five things that we had to ensure happened in order to have a successful program. One, we did our research. We knew the marketplace was changing. We knew that there's a certain segment of our speakers that weren't worried so much about their speaking fee, but wanted to learn better skills on how they can sell more effectively from the platform so that they can sell more of their products and services. So we knew there was a market. Two, we stuck to our guns. You see, when you're taking risk, even if it's measured, you're going to be facing those dark moments when you're doubting whether or not it's really going to work. You see, you have no historical data to give you the comfort to know that you're doing the right thing. I mean, let's face facts. If we bring Dale Irvin into a convention to do convention updates, we know there's very little risk there because he nails it each and every time. But if you bring in a brand new speaker who doesn't have this historical data, then you know what? There is no guarantee. And if you're faint of heart and you're not willing to go through those moments of fear then don't bother launching a new product or service. Because if you succumb to that fear, you'll be making mistakes in your decision-making process. Three, you need to be able to segment your markets effectively. We learned that in the Platform Profits Lab. You see, not every product and service is meant to be bought by everybody. In fact, certain things are just limited to a certain niche of your marketplace. If you don't segment your market properly, 
then you're not going to have the correct messaging and in turn you won't get the sales that you're after. We segmented the Platform Profits Lab by making it a standalone program. The reason we did this was because if we put this as part of a regular NSA program, there would be people that would have gone into that track and would have been offended by being sold to from the stage. We were breaking the mold. In this program, we asked our presenters to sell from the stage, something that half of our members don't want to be involved with. So we segmented the market by basically making it a standalone program. In addition to that, we were very clear in our advertising that you will be sold to. And if this makes you uncomfortable, then maybe this is not the program for you to attend. Four, you need to be transparent. We were transparent in the expectations we laid out to all the participants. Everybody walking into that room for that weekend understood two things. One, they were going to be sold to. Not once, not twice, but many times. And two, they understood that whatever monies were collected by the presenters selling products and services, there was going to be a 50-50 split. So nobody was disappointed. Everybody knew what they were walking into, and everybody was happy with the results. And then finally, five, you have to produce a great experience. It's no different than when you're going after to give a speech to a client. You have to make sure that you have the right presenters on stage, people with the right ethics, people with the right presentation skills, people whose values align with values of the organization, in this case, NSA. I'm pleased to report to you that the Platform Profits Labs exceeded the expectations of NSA, both in terms of customer experience and also revenues generated. You see, the world is changing, and all of us have to adapt. If you don't adapt, then the world's going to pass you by. Now, don't worry. By us producing the Platform Profits Lab, this does not mean in any way that from now on at every NSA meeting, every presenter is going to be selling to you. That will not happen. At all of our traditional NSA meetings, no one will be selling to you from the platform. But that does not mean that NSA will not provide the education for the segment of its marketplace that wants to learn how to be better at selling their products and services from the platform. We have to do that in order to properly fulfill the needs of all of our segments. That is what the world's calling for, and NSA is prepared to meet the needs of all segments today and in the future. Speaking of segments, there's quite a few of us that are looking at how to increase the sales of our existing books, whether we have self-published them or we had them published by traditional houses. I invite you to join me on May 1st through May 3rd in the publishing capital of the world, my hometown, New York City. Well, we're going to be looking at two things. One, how to sell more books than you ever sold in your life. And two, if you want to get a, 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 a contract from a major publishing house, what you're going to have to do in order to get the advance that you're after. You'll be listening to agents and publishers and what they're looking for. So if you want to sell more books, self-published or by a major house, this is the event for you. And I invite you to join me on May 1st through May 3rd in my hometown, New York City, and we'll be having a great event. Thank you. Thank you, Ron. A while back, I introduced you to the group Speakers Roundtable, which is a gathering of NSA past presidents, Cavett Award winners, CPAEs, 
multi-published authors. And it's such a diverse group. From the 20 members that they have, you will find so many different business models. I asked them in a previous interview clip to describe their own business model so that you could see the various ways that people have become successful in the field of professional speaking. So truly there is more than just one way to be a successful speaker. Let's go back to the interviews now and the first person you'll hear from is CPAE Scott McCain. Keynoting is the basis of the business. It's it's the foundation and, and then some training and some consulting goes from that. Have a staff of three full-time, one specializing in audio and video production, another one in making marketing calls, and another one in, in running the business so I can be on the road doing what I do. Very cool. Chef Hyken. Well, my business was primarily focused on just doing keynote speeches in the area of customer service and experience. And over the years, uh, I evolved into creating a training product. We have other trainers actually go out and deliver that material to do as, as a follow-up to take it to another level. Recently, even, uh, we've had online training now that incorporates that. So uh, in addition to my actual keynote speeches, we have a training site. In addition to that, of course, the typical products that we sell, the books that we write. And I've been lucky to have uh, five books right now out, plus five co-authored. So we're still going to crank on the content. And that's part of what fuels the delivery and the information that we use in our speeches and our training. A staff of three in the office, plus we have about, well, let's see, five trainers that actually go out and deliver the programs. Bert Decker. I started out in the training business, training business people, executives, salespeople to be able to speak. Mm -hmm. And I'd be able to present and consulted with them on messaging and such. And we've, we've grown that. And we're, we're now, we have uh, 30, over 35 people and doing about 15 programs a week all over the country. But I didn't begin in speaking until I met Patricia Fripp, who said, you got to get an NSA. Well, then I found out about speaking and began speaking and doing keynotes and what everybody else does. I don't do so many any, anymore. But it was a very important thing to promote the business. And then it also became a way to get out the content I wanted to get out. I, and I think speakers, speakers want to change the world. I mean, the, the, you look around this room, and th these are world changers. We want to do something to make a difference. And that's what I wanted to do, and doing it through a training company, but wouldn't have been able to do it without being able to speak about it and learn what I did from the people like around this table and in NSA. Danny Cox. Uh, yes, I have one staff member. Uh, my programs have been based around leadership and personal high performance uh, based on the track records that uh, I set with a, a large sales company. It's all experience-based. Yeah. And you started in, in real estate and then uh, evolved from there into working with all kinds of audiences. And the book that you're best known for, I think, is, is Leadership When the Heat's On. Is that yeah, second edition. Second it's, edition. It's, there you go. It's second Very edition. good. Thank you, Danny. I know mine at one time I was partners with Dr. Tony Alessandra. For five years we collaborated, co-authored, grew a staff of at one point up to 10 people full and part-time. And then today I work primarily as a, as a speaker and trainer. And uh, what I'm doing most of all is in my own region in California doing training seminars ongoing for various clients there and then doing key, keynotes around the world. And, and I've had a lot of international business in recent years. Giovanni Lavera. Hey there. Yes. Hey I, there. Ho there. My business has evolved over many years, and I've experimented with a lot of different models. Primarily today, it's 
keynotes, mm-hmm. uh, special projects. I've done halftime shows, sports, uh, did trade show marketing, but all of it uh, helps you be a better speaker. So whatever you know, experiences that you come from. But today, my model is very simple, very straightforward. I do keynotes. A small percentage of my work is after dinner uh, entertainment. I rarely do any of my entertainment without some kind of inspiration. I do have one virtual staff member at the time. My my business has kind of changed uh, over the years, but uh, it's very very simple and very direct. And some of your performances are theatrical performances. My speeches are very experiential. There's a lot of wow factor in what I do, uh, uh, but it it uh, never diminishes what the message is. It's never there just for just for sake of of, of astonishment. Everything is laced uh, into the message and supports the message, leads to the message to make it indelible for the audience. Outstanding, Dan Burris. How about your business model? Yeah, I've, uh, in the past, I, I, of course, taught biology and physics, started six companies. 30 years ago, started this business. Uh, I've given about 2,800 keynote speeches around the, the world, and I've really used that as a front end to drive strategic advising, product sales. I've authored uh, 12 audio books, uh, six regular books, and and so on. So I think the um, getting paid to market has always been uh, a good policy. At one time, I had... Uh, <laughs> I had uh, six uh, staff at one time, but I've uh, always believed in uh, getting rid of all that overhead. So right now I'm down to one. I'd like to stay right at that point because I have groomed a lot of virtual partners that are like staff. I just don't have to uh, take care of health care and other costs. Excellent. Thank you. Mark Sanborn. Well, I started out in college, worked my way through college as an after-dinner speaker, and then uh, did a brief stint in sales and marketing before I started speaking full-time some 25 years ago. And today, basically, my business is first and foremost about keynoting, followed by writing. I've written uh, eight books uh, myself, contributed to many more, but uh, in the last uh, uh, 10 years, wrote five books. The third part of my business is uh, product sales, learning resources that we sell primarily online. Do a few other things. I advise some select leaders and do some uh, communication development with those leaders. And one of the things that's a little unique about my business is uh, about every other year I work with an intern. And uh, it's a great uh, mutually beneficial experience for myself and the intern. We've partnered uh, on developing some products and some new ventures. And that's uh, really been uh, a nice addition to my business. Oh, by the way, this is Scott McCain uh, from Crothersville, and I really, really admire uh, Mark's business. He's, he's just one of the best. <laughs> Thank you, Mark and, and Mark Scott. Don Hudson, U.S. Learning. Well, uh, right out of college, went to work for a sales training firm as a salesman. Four years later, I gave my first uh, fee-paid speech, 1971. To date, I've done a little over 6,000 in 35 countries. Uh, U.S. Learning is our company. we got eight or ten people, and we're primarily a sales training and negotiation skills training company. We're working very diligently right now on uh, a global presence with uh, VT, virtual training, mm-hmm. online programming. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mike Rayburn. Hey there. Uh, yeah, I, I do keynote presentations. Uh, my background is as an entertainer. I'm a guitarist and a comedian. Um, I've headlined Carnegie Hall. I've, I've headlined Vegas. And uh, what I noticed, when businesses look to, or corporations, associations look to uh, 
improve their businesses and improve uh, the personal development. They go to business leaders. They go to uh, sometimes sports figures. They'll go to people who have overcome a great challenge or people who have accomplished something amazing like climbed Mount Everest or whatever. They say they want innovation and peak performance, and they rarely go to artists, yet that's our lifeblood, is innovation, peak performance. And so what I do is in a business context, I teach artistic principles that they can apply to be able to innovate and uh, improve their businesses. Uh, and so I do that through keynote presentations. Usually, because there's a high entertainment value, it'll be an opening or a closing keynote. And uh, as far as the business model, I have two employees, uh, one full-time uh, who manages my office, books my travel, takes care of all those details, and then a personal assistant who takes care of everything else. And then I have what I would just call, I guess, a permanent contractor. I have a, 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 a speaker manager, and that's a C Agency, specifically it's Krista Haberstock and C Agency. And uh, a large part of my business is also based on the fact that I have recorded CDs, um, I have a book with the message from my, uh, from my keynote, and so a quarter of my income comes from the sales of those, either pre-sales to everyone in the crowd or sales afterwards. Jim Rohde, tell us a little bit about Jim and Naomi Rohde's business. Well, 1970, uh, we started, uh, we were involved in dentistry, and we were asked to speak to groups about things that we knew about. Uh, Naomi was very uh, in, enlightening, and, and people wanted to hear, hear, hear her over and over again. Uh, we built a business. Uh, our current staff in Phoenix, Arizona is about a half at, that relates to speaking, but the product company that we've developed has 400 employees, talk about overhead, and we're a major printer and uh, we're, we're, we're very involved in, in uh, helping dentists uh, make it more pleasant for you, the patient, to come in and, and, uh, and, and enjoy that experience. And the name of the company? Is Smart Practice. There you go. And it's a smart practice to do business with them. The speakers in this room have evolved through a, a number of cycles over the years. Their business has taken different forms. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. NSA thanks you, and I thank you as the VOE chair this year. This is Speakers Roundtable. And now, Jim Ziegler on hosting your own events. Our guest today is Jim Ziegler. And Jim's taken a different path than a lot of speakers have. Jim puts on events, and quite successful events. He's doing a, a massive amount of business by bringing the people to him. Welcome to BOE. Hey, thank you. Tell us about this world of, of putting on your own events. What do you call them? you call them summits? you call them... Well, we're calling conferences. Conferences. Uh -huh. And... Um, we're doing five, four conferences a year and a, num a number of minor seminars as well. We, we produce smaller seminars, but the four big ones a year, um, quarterly, they're, they're, they're yielding great revenues. Yeah, we talked about the numbers offline, and, and believe me, folks, it's enough that you want, you want in his world. <laughs> <laughs> a long time ago, you know, I've done a lot of keynote speeches. I still do maybe a dozen, 15 keynote speeches a year, but... Yeah. I'd rather be the ringmaster than the talent. Well, it, it, your world has been the automotive world to a large extent, right? I've, I've, become, a, I've become a, a minor celebrity in the automotive industry. I, uh -huh. you, know, you wouldn't know me in publics, but I sign autographs at the conventions. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of cool. Let's say I'm a, a speaker that's got a good message, I've got my skills up there. 
I want to make a change in my business model and follow your business model, what do I need to do? First of all, is your subject conducive to seminars? Would people pay to attend your event? Would sponsors pay to sponsor your event? Where's your audience coming from? There's two types of seminars, basically. The public seminars where people are paying individually, and, and that's a little more risky. My seminars are basically aimed at the companies paying for their employees to attend. That sounds like a better deal because you got fewer sales call and more, more people buying. And the corporate sponsors are a lot more interested in that sort of thing. Yeah. And you can target your audience specifically. And I've got a couple twists on it. So the dealer principal, the owner of the company, the CEO, the officers, they attend at no charge. Mm-hmm. And ordinarily, they're going to bring paid Come into my web, well. said the spider to the fly. Said the spider yes. to the fly. <laughs> they're, they're probably going to bring some of their own paid attendees with them. Mm-hmm. But whether they do or not, the fact that I have so many decision makers in the room is even more attractive to the sponsors yeah. who pay the big dollars. And you and I discuss what those dollars are. Uh-huh. I've, got, I've got sponsors paying five digits to be sponsors. For one event. <laughs> for one event. And they're, and my sponsors are staying with me from event to event. So obviously it's working for them because this is not just about you convincing them to buy a sponsorship. It's about making sure that that sponsorship was a good decision for them. So the next time, all you do is call them back and say it's time to renew. Well, our events are, are Internet-based right now. We're, we're, we're aiming at automobile Internet marketing and Internet marketing subjects. So... It's, it's all based on technology-enabled sales and marketing. Um, so a lot of the technology companies, the lead providers, um, the, the auto trader type companies, those mm-hmm. are the type of sponsors I'm aiming for. When you say Internet-based, is the meeting held online? Oh, no, no, no. The, no. Okay. The one we have coming up is at the Golden Nugget Hotel in Las Vegas. Perfect. Casino venues generally draw very, very well. And yes. We try to, I just did one at the MGM Grand in Detroit last month or month before last, and our keynote speaker was Scott Monty, the social media guru Oh yeah, mm-hmm. in top 10 Forbes rated, for, yeah, just incredible. So the, the fun part about this is, is I'm not paying a lot for speakers. I may have one paid speaker headliner on the, on the, on the platform, and the sponsors are providing the rest of them. So the speakers are getting paid, you're just not having to bother with it. Yeah, right. well, I yeah, got, very I got, good. I got 23 speakers on stage over two and a half days, two breakout sessions, two cocktail parties, four dinner sessions, and it's all paid for in advance. I've got six digits in the bank before we sell the first seat. Wow. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, I can see a lot of people saliv- or hear them salivating right now. <laughs> it, it works. It, it works, but it's a, it's a formula. Now, now, bear in mind, we didn't just fall on the top of the mountain. We... Yeah, you've built this for years. Building this, you know. So, but if, yeah, if I were to make that decision today, assuming I already had my my content and I knew who my market was, how long would it take me probably to ramp up to get to a point approaching where you are? It's gonna take a pretty long time, probably till Tuesday. Holy smokes! I mean, if if you've got you mean, the principles, in other words, you can do it in a very short period of time. You could do it your first event if you target your sponsors. And where do you find the sponsors? Well, to tell you the truth, I shop the other conferences to see who's sponsoring them. Mm-hmm. I go to the trade publications to see who the biggest new advertisers are. 
The company is my wife and myself and one computer program I kept on staff. My, 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 my. my. She's a meeting planner. I'm, I'm the sales arm. I'm, yep. I'm the production arm. I'm, yeah, we're, we're doing this ourselves. I mean, we're not talking about something that takes a giant staff to produce. I think one of the problems, or I observe that one of the problems most speakers have, and I've been guilty of this, is thinking of events as one-off deals. What's the danger there? In, in thinking of it as, well, I'm going to see how this one goes, and if this one goes well, then I'll, I'll do more of them. Uh, the first seminar we ever did had 17 attendees. Mm. Now, I'm looking back 25 years ago. Two of them paid. The rest of them were friends of mine to make the other two feel it was a worthwhile event. <laughs> so we now, can, some people yeah. listening to this might think Jim's telling a joke. No, that's the reality, and I've been there too. I know, I know what you're talking about. That many times events are handled that way at first. So to answer your question in a, in a roundabout sort of way, we were planning number two and number three before number one was finished. Yeah, it wasn't. Let's see if this works, and then we'll move on to number two. I knew I had two attendees, mm-hmm. and I knew they were all friends of mine. I'd, st- I'd stuffed the room so we'd get some good photographs. But those photographs led to newsletters, led to advertisements, and, and this was prior to social media that we have today. With social media we have today, I've, I personally have 100,000 friends and followers on the social media. We can move vast amounts of people with the social media. All of our events have their own fan pages. And so you've got the interaction. We're driving and moving people around. The majority of our advertising is online. The majority of it's social media and email campaigns. So I'm, I'm going to see if I can capture some of your keepers here. One, make sure your message is one that's worth paying to hear. Two, make sure the market you've chosen to do this with is one that can support putting on events like this on an ongoing basis. And then take me from there. Well, first of all, be sure somebody would pay for it. Right. Secondly, be, be sure that um, it's something that will sustain an ongoing event. Do you have you – know, I've got 21,000 automobile dealers that average 100 employees each, I, and there's a huge turnover to retrain people. So I'm going to have a market into infinity as far as I can see. Looks that way. Do you have a market into the future? Will the people pay for it? Will the, do the sponsors want this audience? Do you have the, the staying power, power to, to start it and to continue it and grow it after the first one? This is information all of us can use, whether we're putting on seminars as a career shift or just occasionally putting on an event. You've given us some great insights and ways to keep us profitable. I appreciate it, Jim Ziegler. Thank you very much. I appreciate you. You bet. Always admired you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jim. Now let's hear from Dan Thurman about our upcoming NSA convention. Hi everybody, Dan Thurman here, your convention chair for Perform 2014, the NSA convention held this summer in beautiful San Diego, California. We already have record-setting early registration, and if you haven't already, you should sign up right away. Why? Because we've planned a phenomenal experience that will help you get better, get booked, and grow your business. The powerhouse main stage lineup includes Eric Wall, Nancy Duarte, 
Steve Forbes, and Kat Cole, CEO of Cinnabon, Mark Sanborn, Eric Chester, Carmen Agraditi, Jay Bear, and Jim Quick. Desi Williamson will host our first ever Speak Tank, where pre-selected contestants pitch their business concepts on the main stage to an elite team of NSA sharks. Alan Weiss, Bill Bacharach, Roxanne Emmerich, and one of the original stars of Shark Tank, Kevin Harrington. You'll also experience Mike Rayburn as you've never seen him before, plus the comedy of Dale Irvin and Paul Hushelt. Choose from over 50 incredible, innovative, carefully selected breakout sessions and a sensational staff track to empower your entire team. You'll be inspired by incredible artists of all genres, including Grammy Award winners and veterans of Cirque du Soleil. Our opening night extravaganza features LA's number one party band, The Zippers, and our closing Hall of Fame banquet is hosted by Tim Gard. More announcements and surprises still to come, so stay tuned. The only question is, are you going to perform in 2014? I certainly hope so. Sign up today to capture the early bird discount and reserve your room at the fabulous Manchester Grand Hyatt. It starts on a Sunday this year, June 29th through July 2nd. Elevate your craft while you explode your business and make 2014 the year you perform. I'll see you there. For Music of the Month, I reached out to a woman who has done it all. Eleni Kalekos is the Chief Transformational Officer of her company, which is a training and coaching company in Ann Arbor, Michigan. Eleni is a speaker coach, a trainer, a professional actress, and an award-winning touring singer-songwriter. She's offered to share with us her song, Everyday Heroes. I think you'll enjoy the message, and I know you'll enjoy the music. Crisis call and talks a desperate denizen out of a deadly fall. It's the teacher staying after school to teach a kid to read when everyone has given up. The teacher still believes every day. Like robes to the drowning, a roof in the rain. Every day healers, every day saints. It's the stranger giving sage advice out of the total blue. It's the lawyer who won't charge a fee in defense of the truth. It's the singer on a darkened stage who seems to know your pain. It's the nurse who rocks the newborns 
That's just about it, folks. This is the month of March, and next up is April. Time for growth. I'd like to thank our VOE team, Alina Ettringer of High Point University's Nito Cubain School of Communication, John Schwartz, also known as Vinny Varelli, who does our technical and, and surgical edits on this series, Rocky Heyer of Master Video, who does the detailed editing on this, Barbara Paris and her staff at NSA Headquarters, Greg Williams, our Chief Listening Officer, and the rest of the contributors to this VOE team. Thank you very much for listening. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Jim Cathcart saying stay tuned. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.